I greet all of you again in the name of Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. I thank, I thank Him and I thank our great and glorious triune God that He has given us a day every week that we might come into His presence and magnify His holy name. <clears throat> I trust you have come to do that this morning. I trust that you have come to hear from God to hear from Him, to hear His Word, to be transformed, to have your mind more attuned to the blessed truth of God's Word. In a culture and a refuge of lies, it is vital that God's people soak their hearts and minds in the Word of God. That's been the truth in every generation, but I cannot think in my life a time more obviously in need of God's people to dispel their ignorance of His Word and to know it and to walk in it with all their hearts. This is the time to be, in the best sense of the word, militant. Know the Word of God and live for Christ, wearing the whole armor of God and wielding the sword of the Spirit, not the weapons of men. May we walk the mighty power of our God. <clears throat> For those of you visiting with us, we are delighted that you are here. We pray that the Lord would bless and encourage all of you. <clears throat> you will see our little ones with us. And uh, if you have little ones with you that need to be quieted, you can take them right through that back door into uh, the fellowship room. We have a large screen there whereby you may continue to follow the service. And if they uh, are brought to peace and and quiet, please feel free to rejoin us. <clears throat> You're not being banished. <laughs> You're being given a better opportunity to help your child learn and uh, for God's people to hear the Word of God. <clears throat> if you have a cell phone, would you please check that now and make sure that it's on mute. <clears throat> Once again, we return to chapter 14. We've had a number of uh, visitors uh, over the last few weeks. It's wonderful to have you all here. Of course, one of the reasons I, I love being here is that we generally have them throughout the year, but there are seasons when we have more than others. Uh, we've been doing an extended study of the issue of conscience, the issue of conscience, and we are presently on a subset of conscience called stumbling blocks. We are considering the danger both to ourselves in laying stumbling blocks before others and the danger of others stumbling. So we want to take our responsibility to this issue very seriously. Christ and uh, not only in his words in the gospel, but his words through the apostles make clear that stumbling is a grotesque and an immense sin. It is not little. Of course, all sin, the smallest sin, if we use that term, is worthy of hell. So we don't take any sin lightly, but there are some that the scriptures obviously put more weight on because they are more devastating and more destructive. <clears throat> Please don't be sucked in to the false doctrine that circulates in many of our churches today that all sin is just sin. 
there are measures and levels both of sin and judgment. So those are matters to keep in your heart and mind. Uh, we trust that our blessed Savior would draw near this morning so that we might hear his word and that we might be drawn upward from our, our earthly concerns and that our hearts be fixed on heavenly things. We're going to be reading then Romans chapter 14, verses 9 through 15. Romans 14, verses 9 through 15. If you would stand with me one more time, we want to give our attention to the Word of God. We want to stand in the presence of the Almighty who by His Spirit breathed this Word. And we want to engage what our God says to us here. We don't want just words on a page. We want words in our hearts. <clears throat> Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 9. This is God's word, brethren. What a blessing. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let us not, therefore, judge one another any more. But judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now that's our subject. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. I repeat, he's talking about food here. He's not saying that there's really not much sin out there. There's no unclean, th there's a lot of unclean things out there. There are a lot of sinful acts that we may engage in, there are many activities that are foul and filthy. But he's saying, he's talking to Jews and Gentiles regarding food, <clears throat> that there's no unclean thing. He knows that. He's been persuaded of that by Christ himself. But to him that esteemeth anything to be unclean, <clears throat> which would be Jews, to him it is unclean. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably. You're not walking in love when your liberty causes a brother to stumble or a sister. Destroy not him with thy meat for whom Christ died. Amen. <clears throat> Let's remain standing for prayer. If you have a condition that makes it difficult for you to stand a little longer, please feel free to be seated. <clears throat> Almighty God, great God of wonders, O triune deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come into thy presence. We know that thou art present in all places at all times. But, O God, we also read this book and we know that thou dost make thy presence known 
among thy people in ways that thou dost not otherwise. Oh, do it here today. We are here. We are hungry. We long for thee. Oh, Jesus, lover of our soul. We just sang that. There is no greater lover. There is no greater husband. There is no greater person or Lord or Savior than Christ. Oh, may our hearts be drawn up and out of these things that clog us and weigh us down. May our hearts be lifted to holy things, heavenly things, pure, right, and good things. Help us to set our thoughts, our hearts on things above and not on things on the earth. Please, O oh God, come and satisfy our longings. Come and meet with our souls. We don't need a, a, a lecture. We don't need uh, the 50th lesson in a course. We need thee to speak by thy word and through thy spirit. There are lost ones here, O Lord. There are lost ones. Oh, please do not leave them in their darkness. Draw them with bands of love unto thee. Oh, make them, as our brother prayed, make them to see their sins. And may they be drawn to the glory and the beauty of the crucified and resurrected God-man, Jesus and, O oh, Father, may thy dear people come. I trust that they are all here with a holy hunger, a holy desire. Father, a holy expectation that thou will meet with us. And we're pleading that thou wilt satisfy our longing souls. Now, O oh God, we pray you would keep the enemy from us. We pray that our flesh would be mortified and that we would set our hearts and minds upon thy word. May we hear it and be transformed. And I pray it in the name of Christ. Oh, bless, bless, bless thy people. Thou hast ever loved them. Make them know it today. In the name of Christ. Amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been considering the crucial issue of stumbling blocks. And we will now continue to contemplate the ways in which we may stumble others. The title of our message is Stumbling Your Family, Part 4. Now, may the holy God of heaven and earth bless us with his presence and power. May his Son dwell in our hearts by faith. May his love draw us near to him. And may we know that love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, we've been under one main heading for quite a while. In what ways can we stumble others? And we're learning there are many, and we haven't come close to touching the multitude of ways that we can stumble others. We've considered stumbling your spouse, husbands, and wives by disobeying what God commands them as husbands and wives cause their spouses to stumble. You've vowed before God to this one. You've had starry eyes. You've stood before a minister or someone. You've said, yes, I will love you. I will care for you. And then it's not very long before you're wondering if you made the right choice. At least that is for some folks. Thankfully, it's not true of all, but it's certainly common. Or pastors wouldn't have to spend time in uh, counseling. The reason for that is you've married a sinner, and that sinner is yours for life. Not for when you get tired of him or her, but you stand before God and you take vows. God takes your vows seriously. I wonder how many of us can remember the vows we took. How do we know we're walking in them if we don't even remember what we promised? Love that spouse. Love that spouse. (laughs) This is not about your feelings. It's about in your heart obeying Christ. As a man. As a woman. As a husband. As a father. Vital. You can stumble your spouse. In an almost unlimited way so we don't want to do that husbands need to love their wives as christ loved the church and gave himself for it wives need to submit themselves to their own husbands as unto the lord it's the command it's not an option but if you have a new heart it is something you desire to do and you want to do it to the glory of christ great sorrow comes to my heart when I had a discussion like I did recently when someone came asking me about uh, a number of friends of this particular soul and watching the husbands who had taken their vows and professed to be Christians and were acting no different than the men of the world. Brethren, that's a denial of Jesus Christ and his gospel. If there was ever a man who loves his bride, it's the Lord Jesus. And you know it every day if you're still breathing. You can stumble your spouse. Now, parents can stumble their children. That's the heading we began last week. We considered in that previous message that you can stumble your children by ignoring family worship. Family worship has been the practice of the blood-bought people of God since the earliest days of the church. If you're not worshiping the Lord through the week, I guarantee you, you come into church cold as an iceberg. Dry as dust. Hard as a rock. 
Don't ignore family worship. Fathers, what a privilege, what an honor, what a joy it can be to be bringing your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and watching over the years as God blesses your efforts. There are always, uh, there are always those who defect from the faith and from the love of a father. But uh, that's exactly the experience of our God in heaven. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. I've had children, but they've forgotten me. <clears throat> Don't ignore family worship. Encourage your wife. Build up your wife. Build up your children. Set before them a model of a Christian man who loves the Lord, who loves his word, and who loves his children and his wife. Secondly, you, you can stumble your children by neglecting to discipline them. Certainly, there are always stern dis disciplinarians that can overdo it and drive their children away. We're about to talk about that. <clears throat> but there are also those who refuse in their understanding of nurturing uh, their children. <clears throat> they refuse to disciple and they refuse to discipline their children. Very often you can tell if they come to visit your house. <laughs> it's always something when someone says, yeah, you know, so-and-so came over. And like their children were like almost hanging from the, 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 the lights in the roof. I mean, uh, in the ceiling. Uh, they were like hopping and jumping upon everything in the house. Well, you know what goes on in their house. <laughs> but not in yours, right? So... <clears throat> When you don't discipline your children, you're teaching them there's no hell. And there's no punishment for what they think, speak, and do. That they can just go ahead and live the way they want. In fact, they can be quite comfortable going to a lot of modern churches and living like the world and seeing very little difference between them and those on the way to eternal destruction. Because they don't think there are consequences for sin. All of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions have consequences at some level or another. <clears throat> so we can overdo it and we can underdo it. And finding that spot where it's just right is a challenge. It's easier to overdo or underdo. So, you can stumble your children by neglecting to discipline them. Now, today we take up where we left off. Number three, you can stumble your children by being unjust in your commands and punishments. You can stumble your children by being unjust in your commands and punishments. We all know that the Bible does not have a specific verse for every action and scenario in life. But it has principles by which we can govern anything. We have to know those principles. And that's a challenge as well. That's where discipline sometimes gets very foggy. And, and not helping the picture is children that say, 
But you think they're Christians and they do it. Right? How come we can't do it? They're doing it. You believe they're Christians. By the way, that's one of the ways you can make your brothers and sisters stumble. If you flaunt things that you know that others cannot or do not do. So, 1 Samuel 14 tells us a tragic story. Saul laid a stumbling block before the men of Israel and before his son, Jonathan. Jonathan and his armor bearer attacked the Philistines' outpost at a place called Michmash. By faith in the living God, the two of them slaughtered many Philistines. Saul and the men of Israel joined the battle for a great defeat of their enemies. But Saul and the men of Israel joined the battle with this scenario. Saul had commanded the men of Israel to fast as they pursued the Philistines. And to his command, he added this. Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. So Saul demanded that the men of Israel fight without the strength of food. By that foolish command, the sacred text says that, Paul, that Saul distressed the men of Israel. He wanted them to annihilate his enemies, give all their power and energy to wiping out his enemies. But he denied them the strength they needed to do it. Verse 28 says, And the people were faint. I mean, the Holy Spirit tells you that. He's telling you, factor this in as you read the story. By faith in God, Jonathan had gained the initial victory over the Philistines. And Saul and his forces later joined the battle. But Jonathan did not hear his father's foolish command and curse about eating food. So, he ate some honey from a honeycomb he had discovered in a wooded area. That strengthened him. His eyes were lightened and said, Now, the battle raged on. Verse 31 says, And they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. Now, those kind of statements very often don't mean much to us. <laughs> but then when you find out that Ajalon was 14 to 20 miles, depending on who you read, from Michmash, Men with no food, fighting a battle in which they're pursuing their enemies, using all of their strength for anywhere from 14 to 20 miles. Most of us would make it a mile. 
That's an extraordinary picture. We're not surprised then to read verse 31. And the people were very faint. They were exhausted, faint, and hungry. So, after defeating the Philistines, they were so famished, they slaughtered the Philistines' sheep, oxen, and calves on the spot and ravenously devoured them with the blood. Now, once again, that may not say much to us in our culture, but that was a clear violation of God's law. As early as Genesis 9-4, God said, But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. And in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 27, God said, Whatsoever soul it be that eateth any manner of blood, even that soul shall be cut off from his people. Now, <clears throat> commentators struggle over those words, cut off from his people, because sometimes they clearly indicate death. Other times, it seems to be something akin to excommunication, putting someone out of the nation. But either way, those are severe judgments on this act. Are you getting the picture? Saul made a foolish and unjust demand on God's people. And then he attached the curse of death to it. He made it clear. You eat anything today when you're out there killing those Philistines, you're going to die. How about that? Well, it, it appears that the people, other than Jonathan, obeyed Saul, but we hear from the Holy Spirit, they were very faint. Saul had set the stumbling block over which God's people fell. They greatly sinned against God by eating the meat that still had the blood in it. Now consider further. <clears throat> Surely it was their sin. They sinned. They couldn't just say, it's not my fault. But the biblical and theological fact is, while it is their sin, Saul was a part of their falling into it. God hates this. Jesus Christ said, those that make any of the little ones that believe in him to stumble into sin. Better for them to be drowned in the depths of the sea. How serious is that? Do we take that seriously? 
Saul probably thought he was honoring God. We're going to take care of those pagans. So you can't eat until you've wiped them out. It's very possible for all of us to think we're serving the Lord when indeed all we're doing is setting a stumbling block for somebody else. Well, we have, because we haven't considered if what we're doing is truly wise, biblical, in harmony with the truth and the word of God. They sinned. But Saul set the stumbling block over which they tripped. Now consider further. The Lord used Jonathan that day to save Israel. Really quite remarkable. But Saul discovered that Jonathan had eaten the honey. He declared, Thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. I'm going to prove to everybody around here that I keep my word. That oath was as foolish as his command. It was as foolish as Jephthah's vow, which cost him the life of his only child, his daughter. Read the book of Judges and be stunned. Saul's command was not only foolish, it was unjust. And the penalty that he put on it was worse. The death penalty. The death penalty. He had weakened the people of Israel in battle. He was the cause of this. And that stumbling block became the occasion for their sinning against God. Saul's hypocrisy in this scene is astounding. If you read it carefully and think through what you look at in this actually very rich passage. After receiving the news that the Israelites were eating meat with the blood... He admonished them. He did something. But he didn't kill anybody. Ye have transgressed. Sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. You've sinned. Now, it could be it's a certainly possible, it's a little difficult to tell, but it's certainly possible the ban on eating, the fast, <clears throat> was over in the evening. So this might be in the evening. <clears throat> but you'll notice that even in the words that he uses, he doesn't truly hold them accountable for what they've done. This was a sin that God had put at least excommunication on, at worst, death. Now, all of God's judgments are just. Our judgments, not always. Saul proves that very clearly here. So, 
He told those famished men to kill and eat, but he forbade them to eat the blood. He did not demand the death or the excommunication of anyone. He didn't even bring that up. Do you realize what you've done, men? Do you realize that you've done something that God may have destroyed all of us for? Not a word. What was he most concerned about? Was it God's law? Well, he was ready to kill his own son. And to say that in the presence of all. He was ready to kill the hero of the day. For a taste of honey. It appears that Saul was more furious with Jonathan for breaking his command than he was with the men of Israel for breaking God's command. Do you think that could happen with parents? Do you think maybe you could be more upset about things that your children do that irritate you than their actual and clear sinning against God? You should ponder that. Oh, parents, do you discipline your children so severely for your rules more than their violations of God's holy commands? I pray it's not so. But all of us must answer that. What a dreadful stumbling block that is. My commands... More important than God's commands. <clears throat> now then, the men of Israel resisted the king. There's good news in the story. The men of Israel, and this is remarkable, resisted the king whom they begged for. <clears throat> they resisted the king when he demanded Jonathan's death. They refused to let him kill his own son because of his unjust command and curse. Oh, fathers. Oh, mothers. You must understand the dreadful consequences of setting stumbling blocks before your precious little ones. Your discipline must be real. You can't ignore it. That's a sin. You can't do it with the wrong mind or the wrong way. That's sinful. Your discipline must be according to God's word. To treat, listen carefully now, to treat every violation immediately with corporal punishment, as some do, is not the way your heavenly Father deals with you every day. Is that so? Does God pour out His severest chastisements upon you every time you sin? He does not. And you know well. But very often, we either don't discipline at all, our parents didn't discipline us, or maybe, maybe our parents overdid it, so we underdo it. 
Uh, that's very common, especially among homeschoolers. One generation is like, okay, nobody in this culture believes in, span- in, in spanking or, or disciplining their children, so boy, are we going to do it. And then their children go up and go, ah, maybe not so much. You can watch it. In fact, I would, I would, I won't wager, I would imagine that some of you know people just exactly in that situation. In fact, some of you might be people in that situation. That's not good for your children. With grace, with love, but with a holy firmness in accord with God's word, we must discipline our children. There is verbal rebuke. The rod is not the only way of dealing with sinful or disobedient children. God sent his prophets to warn his people, his erring people. They came with words. Listen to your heavenly father. You're breaking his laws. Punishment will follow. There were times when that straightened them up. But there were times when they went on. And then the hammer fell. God would call his people to repentance. And we see this all the way through the scriptures. We even see it in the New Testament. The church of Thyatira. There's a woman named Jezebel who is sexually immoral and bringing false doctrine into the congregation. And the Lord Jesus himself says, I gave her room to repent. I gave her room to repent. But now, this is what I'm going to do. Brethren, we say we believe the Bible, but it's really easy not to go here For the modeling of our lives. One of the problems. And especially again with some homeschoolers. Is that they do a handful of things. That their parents didn't do. Or they don't do some of the things. Their parents did do. But then they bring a great deal. Of their parents. That is not according to the word of God. Right into their family. Now that happens to all of us. Unless we had really. Wonderful parents. And I will say, I know that in this congregation, there are some really wonderful parents. I'm very deeply thankful. I have to fight, as I've said several times, if there's such a thing as a holy envy, I would love to have had a dad like some of the men here. But that wasn't my lot. And uh, when I got married, I did kind of a modern Christian version of, Of the way I was brought up. Brethren. This book. Is the instruction. For us. Not just the handful of verses. That talk to us specifically. About husbands and wives. And parents and children. 
but the principles that are found throughout the Word of God, the wisdom that's contained in, in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. There are principles there that are wonderful for daily life. Very often, they're in the dark part of the Bible. God not only sent verbal rebuke, not only has he sent calls for repentance, but he regularly gave more time than most of us for someone to repent, get it right. Nevertheless, it is true, we're not God. We do not have an infinite patience, (laughs) do we? But sometimes we don't have any. It's like if it were a gas tank, we're in the red. Well, there is corporal punishment, but remember, if you are unjust in your corporal punishment, you will train a generation to be unjust with others. And do not, do not, Chasten your children when you are furious. Don't do that. You will not likely treat them justly. You will not likely treat them with what their crime actually deserves. And that's hard to judge, even on our best days. One of the things I'm telling you underlying all of this is this is supernatural. You can't do this unless you've been born of God. You can't do this and you won't do this unless you've been born of God's Spirit. Self-control is one of those things that needs to be taught to children from their earliest days. You don't wait until they're, oh wait, they're 12 now and oh, They're wild animals. How did that happen? Well, there are a lot of answers for that, but very often it's just simply, we have not brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We got angry about things our parents got angry with. We made the laws that some of them that our parents made. Or we come up with every conceivable law that we possibly can so that they are in a straitjacket from the moment they can understand anything you're telling them. We can overdo or we can underdo. And it takes prayer and crying out to the Lord and knowing how he deals with us to start dealing with our children in a way that's just, in a way that brings him glory. As I said, please don't chasten your children when you're furious. Pray earnestly before you proceed to your discipline so that you're in the right frame yourself. Or you will likely chasten them more from your anger than from love. True chastening really needs to be love motivated. And we can talk about anger in the next heading. So if you're wondering about that, we'll get there. One of my favorite authors, Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, said this. 
open quotes. As God acts in this case, so should we. As God acts, so should we. You have to know him to do that. You have to know his word to do that. When we rebuke others, we should manifest love to them. And notice he didn't say don't rebuke. He said when we rebuke, when we rebuke, we should manifest love to them. And when we manifest love, to do it so as to take notice of what is amiss and to reprove them. Many parents know not how to rebuke their children. They do it with nothing but bitterness. And they know not how to manifest their love. They do it with nothing but fondling and immoderate indulgence. In other words, he's saying it's one or the other. We let them do anything or we make them utterly miserable. They do it with nothing but fondling and immoderate indulgence. There's a time to indulge your children. Just indulge them. There are times to cut that off. And he says, God unites both together. Close quote. Your discipline and your laws and... Whatever you do as you are nurturing and admonishing your children must be like everything else in a Christian's life. It must be guided by love. Or we won't handle it right. Well, number four, you can cause your children to stumble by your sinful anger. This is a hard one to preach. But it's something that we must consider. You can cause your children to stumble by your sinful anger. One of the most dangerous, destructive stumbling blocks in your household is sinful anger. There is such a thing, let me rush to say, as righteous indignation toward sin. That's in the scriptures. As Christ himself manifested. Jesus entered a synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand. His enemies watched to see if he would heal the man because they wanted to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. So Jesus asked them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days or to do evil? To save life or to kill? They refused to answer him. So, the text says, when he had looked around about them, or round about them, um, important, important preposition I'm leaving out here. When he had looked round about on them with anger. Now, this is the Holy Christ. This is love incarnate. He's angry. It wasn't sinful. It was righteous. When he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved 
for the hardness of their hearts, he healed the man. What was it that he was angry about? Being in the house of God with people who professed to be God's people while they distorted the word of God. You get that? They wanted to say that his healing on the Sabbath was a crime. That's a misunderstanding of the Lord's Day, of of the Sabbath. He healed the man. Christ was filled with a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. But most of our anger, let's be honest, well, I'll just say it, most of my anger is just hot-headed sin. Now, you can determine what yours is. If you have a bad temper, raging, sinful temper, you will set stumbling blocks before your children. It is inescapable. First Samuel chapter 20 teaches us this. Once again, we are going to consider Saul and his son Jonathan. When David was hiding from Saul, Saul asked Jonathan where David was. He was supposed to be at the dinner table with Saul and others. When Jonathan said that David was gone to a religious event with his family, Saul erupted in anger. He did not believe Jonathan. And he said, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman, do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion? And under the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established, nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now, send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. Now some of us may have left out Somebody's surely going to die in one of our outbursts. But let me tell you, they come from the same place and they're of the same nature. Saul's words may seem unclear to us at first, but Saul is raging in anger. And his anger in his heart spews forth from his tongue. Saul used insulting language that implies that rather than being born of a queen, Jonathan must have been born of a rebellious, sluttish woman. Now, we don't quite get the idiom there, but this is how Saul sees Jonathan's protecting David. You could not have been born of your mother, the queen. You must be some harlot's offspring. That's pretty ugly, isn't it? Parents can say ugly things, which is unfortunate. 
Saul's other tongue poison sounds like this. Thou hast chosen the son of Jesse unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness. Now, again, he means something like this. You are a shame and a disgrace to the mother who gave birth to you. Now, maybe, just maybe, there's a time to say something like that to someone who has lived in utterly unrepentant rebellion against you. That's possible. Possible. But the fact is, Jonathan was a very faithful son. He was a great warrior. He was still hanging with dad after he knew that Saul wanted to kill his closest friend, David. When fathers and mothers are angry, we can go far beyond correction and move into insulting, degrading, cutting, toxic language. Oh, how we must be cautious with angry language. It sets a stumbling block before our children that may stumble generations of our descendants. Parents with bad tempers do multi-generational damage. Did you hear that? Listen. Parents with bad tempers do multi-generational damage. They drop bombs on their family and then their, their children grow up and drop bombs in their house. Because that's what's been imprinted in their minds. There are a few exceptions, but they're rare. Listen to the Holy Spirit, please. Make no friendship, and young people especially listen to this, make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man thou shalt not go, lest thou learn his ways and get a snare to thy soul. You will commit sins in anger that you will regret all of your life when you look back. <clears throat> searing, biting, scathing anger usually produces crushed, passive adults or a new generation of hotheads. Crushed or being a chip off the old block. I once had a teenager say to me, my father knows what hurts each one of us children. When he gets angry, that's what he goes for. Wouldn't want that on your gravestone, would you? The painful look in that young person's eyes and the grief in those words broke my heart. They told the story. Oh, parents, is there a flamethrower in your mouth? Are your words like a Molotov cocktail hurled at your children? 
Listen to James. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. You need the Lord Jesus Christ to truly govern your tongue. It's an unruly evil, says the Spirit of God through James, full of deadly poison. Now, having said that, what did Saul's anger accomplish? He has scorched his son. Now, what has he accomplished? Did his son say, thanks, Dad, I needed that? Is that what happened? No. Did, did he say, you know what, son? You know what? This whole thing with David has really been getting to me. I, I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. Will you please forgive me? Everybody here at the table, I just, I just crushed my son in front of everybody. Would you forgive my sin? Not what he did. What did his anger accomplish? A stumbling block. He drove Jonathan to rebellion, to side with David, and to love David even more. Are you listening? Parents, do you not know that as your children get older, your withering blasts may drive them away from your heart and away from your home? Your anger might just drive your children to sinful actions, sinful friendships, or even marriages to which you would never give your consent. The sin would be theirs. It's a real sin. They made the decision. They can't say, ah, not my fault, just because dad's got a bad temper. Mm -mm. <clears throat> Sinning against God because of someone else's sin is never acceptable. The sin would be theirs and there would be no excuse for it but your stumbling block anger may have stumbled your child into decisions that now break your heart some of us know that to be a reality may not be the case some of you may have never experienced anything like that and i'm very grateful and thankful but i'm talking about professing christian homes a withering anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Scriptures are very plain about that. What does wise Solomon say? 
He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. It means he's a real conqueror. Listen again. He that is slow to wrath is of great understanding. But he that is hasty in spirit, meaning hasty to get angry, exalteth folly. What does that mean? Makes himself a fool. And he does foolish things. Listen again. An angry man stirreth up strife. And again, he that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. Now, if I were to say, how many of you, how many of you here believe the Bible? I'm sure I would have a majority of hands. How many of you take your anger, those of you that have some, to the Scriptures to see if it's legitimate? How many of you take... There are things worth getting angry about. If we were doing a whole series on anger, we would talk about that. But generally speaking, you should be angry when you look and see either yourself or others violating the Word of God. God has given you the Spirit. He's given you His Word. He's given you His people so that you can walk in His Word. Anger destroys that. Anger destroys the best of friendships, the closest of relationships. It makes for a toxic home experience. Now, everyone, most of us, get angry from time to time. What do you do when you realize that you have? If you have sinned, there's just one thing to do. There's just one thing. Repent. And if it was a public outburst, repent to the public <laughs> that was there. If it was private, repent before the person that was involved with you. Don't just swallow it up and go on. Well, they know I love them. That's destructive too. Because it's disobedience to God. When you sin, you are to repent. Genuine repentance can go an extremely long way in healing. Even when it's been really bad. Husbands, wives, parents, and children, please hear the word of God. He let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man, as I just said, worketh not the righteousness of God. Are you getting that? When you're in a sinfully anger state, it's not going to go in the direction of righteousness. You've got to deal with that then and there the best you can. Some of us have to 
walk away. We have to go cool our hot heads down and then come back and say, I was really angry. Will you forgive me? But when you are sinfully angry, you need to immediately start the patch up work, the healing work. It begins with repentance. Eve did not believe that there would be consequences to her sin. She knew what God said, but she laid it aside. Do you believe that there are consequences to your sin? Oh, well, I'm saved by grace. I know the Lord has forgiven me, and so I don't really worry about stuff like getting angry with people. Really? Do you think like that? Scriptures don't talk that way. When we sin, and we're still capable of it, we need forgiveness. We need to repent of it. We need to repent of it. Scorching anger always brings consequences. Maybe not now. You may just be priming a time bomb for later on. And then when it blows up in your face, you don't realize, wait, I'm dealing with something that my anger started 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Sooner or later, as the saying goes, you can pay me now or you can pay me later, but you're going to have to pay me. When you fail in this way, what should you do? Repent. (laughs) I mean, it's not like, I've got no idea what to do next. Repent. 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 Repent of your sins before God and then repent to your spouse or to your children. If you've blasted and wasted one of them in front of everybody else when it was not a necessary public reproof, there are those too. And you should, you should repent before all of them. Sorry. Would you all please forgive me? I know that what I just said and what I did was sinful. Would you forgive me of that? Do not just say, I'm sorry. Do not just say, I'm sorry. And then continue in the same anger for years. You are teaching your children that men in authoritative positions don't have to keep their word. I'm sorry is not the same category as forgiveness. Now, I'm not saying you can't say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? But I'm sorry is just telling them how you feel. Forgiveness is a transaction between you and the person against whom you have sinned. And you're putting in their court the option to release you from that sin or not. Will you forgive me for what I just did? You just shrug it off, I guarantee you. You're going to stay in a loop that ultimately will not be dealt with. Well, you know, your wife will just say, well, he's just that way. Or your husband will say, well, she's just that way. 
It's not the way to talk about Christians. We're a work in progress. God is working in his people to make them like his son, who got angry for the right reasons and expressed it in a just way. When you fail in this way, repent. Now, let me just say, not only if you just say, I'm sorry, and you go on with it for years, you will teach your children that you don't believe what you're saying. Repent and ask your spouses and your children's forgiveness. It's amazing how that can heal things. Repent and ask. Then cry out to God earnestly to mortify that volcano in your heart. Let's close with these thoughts. This will be a quick run, but here's what we'll close with. You need to mortify the sins we've been considering in stumbling our children. If you find yourself on that radar screen, you need to say, there's a target for me to learn before God how to mortify. Put that thing to death. It'll take longer for some things than others. It may take others a shorter period of time than you. But it's still the work of putting that thing to death, breaking its power in your life. That is possible. It is really possible. Fathers and mothers, we can stumble our spouses. We can stumble our children. How we need to look daily to our crucified and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, to cleanse us from our sins. Blessing upon blessing. I say it again. Blessing upon blessings. How wonderful it is that God's infinite love has given us a Savior to save us from our anger, sinful anger. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. What a Savior. But we must not stop at seeking forgiveness. As important as it is, as God's dearly loved children, we must mortify those sins. Christ washes them away, and he also gives us the power to break the rule of sins in our lives. Not that we'll never sin again, but that we will not live in a God-hating sin in an unrepentant way. I know what it's like to weep over trying to get some foul thing out of your life. But you can. Or I couldn't stand here and preach it. Paul has said, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So what's the Spirit of God doing with them in this text? They're killing sin. They're assassinating sin. That's why we did an entire series on mortification. We can do it. 
It's there laid out for us in the scriptures. The issue is, are we doing it? Are we putting those things in our spiritual sight? Taking the word of God, praying in the spirit, and saying, today I'm going out on the battlefield with everything in me. I want that down, and I want to walk with Christ. You fall, get up, and go back to the cross. And keep going until you see that thing weakening. Keep going. The Lord is not going to say, all right, you sinned eight times. That's it. It's over. He's going to give you the strength to get up and get in the battle. He delights in your warfare against sin. He withstood it in this world. Now, by the grace of our Heavenly Father, to the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we can, God's regenerate people, can mortify the deeds of the body. As we have previously learned, one, the most important way of mortifying your sins is a pursuit, an active pursuit of a holy life. We do this by using the means of grace, faith in our blessed Lord Jesus, prayer, scripture, the ordinances, and all the rest. Number two, when we sin, we must set our faith in Christ. To accomplish that, consider these things. One, have faith in God's great love for you. That's where you begin, not your condemnation. Jesus was condemned for you. He bore all your sins on the cross. Start with God's love for you, no matter how low and filthy you feel. The enemy wants you down in that sewer of self-pity. Go to the love of God. Number two, confess your sins. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. Three, repent of your sins. Change your mind about that sin. More about that another time. Number four, set your faith fully in the sufficiency of Christ's perfect sacrifice. Your sin is no match for the blood of Christ. None. You conquer by His glorious work for you. And work in you. By faith fill your heart with biblical truth. That God sent Christ and the Spirit. For the purpose of mortifying your sin. That means you need to take anger. Sinful anger. And set it, set it in your firing range. And shoot at it with God's truth. Pray about it. And stay in the battle. Be quick to repent when you fail. Be quick to repent. God sent his son and his spirit so that you could do this. And then number six, by faith, expect relief from Christ. Expect relief from Christ. The Father loves you. Christ died and intercedes for you, and the Holy Spirit empowers you. You are then equipped to deal with the sins we've talked about. And I urge you to do so. Begin on your knees in the presence of the one who loves you.
So may every spouse and parent here examine his heart or her heart. If the Spirit of God brings you to sin, if the, if the Spirit of God brings you to see your sin in these things, do not despair, though it, it, it feels like despair is the, is the place to go. Don't despair. Run to Christ. Don't despair. Run to Christ. Well, I did this yesterday. Yeah, he knows that. That's why he hung on the cross. He knows when you'll do it again. That doesn't mean it's okay. It means strengthen up and go back to the battle. May we do it to the good of all those who live with us. And may that bring glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Now, O Christ, we've heard much. There's much to think about. May we do it to thy glory. May we do it with joy. May we do it that we might be strengthened to walk in the things of Christ. We know how difficult, I know how difficult what I have said this morning is. But I also know that what I am saying is so. It is true. Help us to walk in thy blessed spirit according to thy word. Teach us. Help us. And may we encourage one another in the daily battle. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Let's hear that again. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's because his blood has washed all your sin away. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's go in the name of the Lord.